News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Colin Miller joins us now, commentator for the Vancouver Whitecaps, of course, soccer analyst on AM730. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Simi. How are you this morning? I am good, thank you. How are you feeling this morning? Yeah, a, a, bit, a bit depressed after having uh, lost our first two games, of course, but I don't know if I'm overly surprised. I thought Canada did very, very well against Belgium and, and looked a better team, to be honest with you. I think someone would be very hard-pressed to figure out which team was number two, the, the performance that the players put in yet, uh, or, uh, against Belgium. But certainly yesterday against Croatia, um, you know, you can only poke the bear so many times before uh, you, you get bitten. And uh, uh, yeah. Croatia, Croatia, for me, were absolutely in a, at a different level. Uh, they, they just have a very, very top-class uh, uh, group of players. And they have had for years, Simi, the pedigree, the experience at European Championships and World Cups. You could see the difference there between the two countries with the greatest respect to Canada. Yeah, let's talk about that, though. Did we poke the bear a little bit too much? Yes, absolutely we did. I mean, I know that there's been a lot written and said about the comment that uh, that John Herdman had made. You know, I've been a manager myself, uh, Simi, and I have made mistakes at times doing that sort of thing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure at times John will look back and go, maybe I, sh- I should have kept that in-house. I'm not a fan of this on-field huddle anyway. I don't think it's good. I think all of that stuff should be in the dressing room. Uh, to be brutally honest with you, I'm definitely not a fan of doing that on the, on the middle of the pitch where everybody sees you. I don't know why yeah. manage, some managers do that. But then certainly uh, the, having the audacity to go and score, what, 90 seconds into the game, you've poked the bear against me uh, with a wonderful goal from Alfonso Davies. And I'm, I'm delighted for Fonzie because, you know, missing the penalty the other day, uh, I'm just glad personally for the young lad that he managed to score such a beautiful goal for Canada, our first, of course, in, in two World Cups. Let's talk about what we can take away from this. So all that aside, I view this as a big learning experience, I think, for us, Colin. Yeah. And I hope that that definitely shows four years from now. So what would you be telling them about the positives here? Well, I, I think the mindset and the attitude of the players has been incredibly positive right from the outset. And and the team has been very well prepared by John Herdman and his staff. There's no question about it. The, the exciting thing for me, Simi, to take away here is is the quality of the players that we have and the age. This is a very, very young group of players. I would say the majority of these players that are uh, in the squad at the moment will still be around when it comes time for us hosting the next World Cup in four years. So that's a, that's a terrific takeaway. The fact that we've competed so well against two fantastic footballing countries says that we're, that we're doing something right. Individually, the players are now playing at a very, very high level across the world, which is, which is fantastic in itself. And then when you put all those factors together, uh, it, it has the making of, of an ideal storm for us when we're preparing for, for the next World Cup. All right, that's like, you know, I guess the goal now. But listen, we've still got some, this one isn't completely over for us yet, right? How critical is this next game in terms of Canada setting the tone for letting, you know, Canadians know how they're feeling at this point and how looking ahead to that four years from now? 
Well, again, we're we're under the course on on uh, Thursday, Simi, because Morocco are a top class team as well. There's no question about it. They've got four points in this very difficult group. They beat Belgium two 0 They beat Morocco. Uh, sorry, they drew with uh, Croatia nil nil as well. So this is a team that uh, people might say, "Oh, we'll beat we'll beat Morocco very easy." Well, that's not going to that's not always how it happens in football. The the fact that uh, Morocco have you know they've still got so much to play for on Thursday uh, in terms they just need a point uh, to get uh, to get a res- to, you know to get through sorry they may even need a win if I if I do my calculations right so they have so much to play for so Canada will have to rotate the team on on Thursday because there's one or two injuries and uh, some tired legs there for sure but uh, we we want to finish the tournament on a high for sure it would be wonderful if we could win our first game at a World Cup Sydney. Uh, but we're going to have to play at our very best because this Morocco side, they still have players that are playing at the top levels uh, in world football as well. You know what's been so great, though, Colin, about watching this World Cup so far has been it's very unexpected. I feel like all of it has. There have been results where you just did not expect to see. Oh, there's been a few incredible results. You know, Saudi Arabia, Japan, uh, beating some powerhouses as well. There's been some disappointing performances from some of the top countries. And, you know, it kind of shows you, I mean, Brazil have been wonderful so far. They've been a joy to watch. Uh, but it just shows you what can happen. I mean, England go and thrash Iran at one point, And then everybody thinks England are going to be the best team in the World Cup. But it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, every team is going to have to be at their best in every game at this level of football. You, there's no team has divine right to win a game of football. And that's what's making it exciting at the moment. The, the underdogs, if you if you like, have uh, really played that part to the extreme this uh, this opening round so far. That is so true. Okay, so we're going to try to keep watching and try to still be enthusiastic, right? Even though we've been a little bit crushed by this. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, it's still it's still a wonderful year, a football fan of any kind. This is a a buffet for us in the, this month. It's been been fantastic. I've, I've uh, got a sore throat and sore eyes and. Lack of sleep has been it's been wonderful. <laughs> Sore eyes and lack of sleep is wonderful. That's the only time you're ever going to hear something like that. Um, Colin, thanks for your time this morning. Yeah, my pleasure is always, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this holiday season is definitely not a return to what we saw before the pandemic. I mean, sure, we are kind of without restrictions in most areas, but what we are seeing is not just a rise in COVID-19 cases, but also a definite increase in the rise of RSV cases too. And these are two things that are causing a lot of trouble. So if you're going to be traveling out there, if you're going to be going somewhere else in Canada, what do you need to know about what exactly is going on out there? Well, Dr. Isaac Bagosh is with us now, infectious disease specialist at Toronto General Hospital. Thanks for being back with us. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to chat. What's it like in the Toronto area right now or in Southern Ontario? Yeah, we're seeing, as you point out, lots of these viruses. Um, COVID, of course, never went away. A uh, flu is taking off uh, significantly as it is uh, elsewhere in the country. And RSV is, is around. Of course, we know that can impact any, any age group, but it can more significantly impact the, the youngest and the oldest cohorts, which, which it is. And we've certainly, I work in an adult hospital. We've admitted adults, uh, older adults with, with this as we are admitting more and more people with influenza to hospital as well. Okay, so you're definitely seeing an increase. And are you concerned about people getting together for the holidays? 
I mean, I wouldn't say concerned. We're social creatures, and, and uh, obviously we should enjoy our time together. Of course, we can take steps to make it safer. Uh, sometimes we talk about this as a dichotomous thing, like don't gather. I mean, give me a break. We, we, we're, we're totally yeah. social creatures, and, and we should have a wonderful time. Of course, we just can take steps to make this safer. And in this era, and I'd say in any era, nothing's 100% perfect or 100% risk-free. So, you know, obviously if someone's sick, don't go doesn't matter if it's COVID, flu, RSV, or another one of the million respiratory viruses that are circulating. Don't go and get other people sick. The other thing you can do, of course, is get vaccinated. We know that vaccines aren't perfect, but they go a long way. They certainly do help at an individual and at a community level. And we have safe, free, widely available vaccines for COVID-19 and for flu. And, uh, you know, I think it's also important to be mindful about who's there, right? We're not all coming from the same place. Some people might have very significant risk factors for more severe illness uh, might be more prone to that. And, uh, and I think that can go into some of the decision-making in terms of gatherings and who's going to be there or how many people are going to be there. Right. This is the, I think we've heard this in BC too, which is the take some responsibility for our own actions, but are we good at this? Um, See, you had to think about it. better than others. You had to think about that. Some are better than others. Listen, some people obviously are not. Uh, or aren't mindful about this, or don't care, or just aren't informed. I mean, there's a lot of things that drive human behavior. Other people are very careful, and uh, maybe even on the spectrum of uh, precautions might be uh, at you know the other end of the spectrum. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to make broad generalizations of 38 million Canadians, but but you know, we certainly will see a wide range of behavior over the course of the holiday season. I think the take home point is there are steps that are under our control that we can do to create safer indoor gatherings and we should take them. So also, I guess it would be a matter of, you know, saying to your guests, please let us know if you have a cold. Well, you know, what's interesting too, is I think in this era, it is completely socially acceptable to say, you know what, thanks for the invitation. uh, But you know, a day or two ago, so-and-so in our household uh, had a fever or has a cough or a cold, and we just don't think it's, it's appropriate to join. And exactly zero people, <laughs> no host will say, oh, that's right. terrible, you should come anyways. Like, I think we're past that stage. Um, it's also a great excuse to get out of things that you don't want to go to. But, but on the other hand, too, I think it's, it's a very acceptable thing now, and that might have not been as acceptable uh, in uh, 2019 and before the pandemic. That's very true. Okay, but what about actual travel, like traveling in large crowds and being in an airplane? Like, what should people do? No secrets here. We've been this. We've been through this for almost three years now, right? We know these viruses are primarily transmitted in close, crowded, confined settings. Um, you know, uh, people, of course, it's, it's 2022. Have a great trip. Enjoy. Travel. Explore the world. But you can lower your risk of doing so. And again, if putting on a mask in an indoor setting will reduce, not eliminate, but will reduce the risk of someone getting infected or transmitting the infection. Being up to date on your vaccines helps. And of course, not to forget hand hygiene. I know COVID is primarily transmitted through the air, but, you know, shocker, there's a lot of other viruses out there that are uh, transmitted through other means, including direct contact. So I I wouldn't uh, ignore uh, hand hygiene, uh, which um, featured prominently at the beginning of the pandemic, then was sort of ignored for a while. But 
again, you want to reduce your risk of getting infection while traveling in close, crowded, confined settings, put on a mask, be up to date with your vaccines, make sure your hands are clean, and uh, that will reduce the risk significantly. You make it sound so simple, too, right? If only people could... Uh, but it is. T- yeah, and we know it is, but yet human psychology has taught us that it isn't necessarily as simple as that. Well, I think we've had, you know, look at the communications and the messaging. You've got... 10 provinces and three territories. You've got a federal government. You've got a political class and a public health class. You've got every pundit who, uh, on, like myself, even, you know, on, on the news, right? You've got uh, so many voices, uh, and, and they're not typically aligned. So I think we have done a lot of disservice uh, by confusing the general public, unfortunately. But there are some very simple things, like asking in indoor settings, vaccination, hand hygiene, and that, that'll certainly help. All right, well, we'll see what we can do to spread that word. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. So why is the B.C. government facing new criticism over the controversial wolf call program? Now, the province's argument is that the program is meant to reduce predators and protect threatened caribou populations. They say it's being carried out in a humane way. Others would disagree, though. Joining us now is Aaron Hoffman, Director of Advocacy and Policy for Fur Bearers. That's a nonprofit animal welfare group. Aaron, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What are your concerns about this program? Uh, so our main concern is, it's um, you know, the government's claim that it's being done humanely. Uh, we're finding out uh, new information about how the wolf call is actually very, being carried out. Um, and it's pretty disturbing, uh, some of the information that we've have learned. Um, it, you know, it's really contrary to that claim that is humane. Okay, so what, what are some of the things that you found out? So um, what we found out is that uh, wolf calls are actually being used um, as part of the process to reduce wolf numbers. And so what's happening is that government contractors are capturing and collaring wolf pups. They are tracking them. Um, they're killing their entire families. And then they're leaving that, those wolf pups alive. So essentially, they're orphaning wolf pups. Um, and then they leave them in the forest. And they, you know, might be uh, a few weeks or a few months until they track those wolf pups again when they leave them to other wolves and then the contractors shoot them all. Okay, what has the government had to say about this? Uh, we haven't uh, received a response. Uh, I believe there was one response from the government that wolf pups aren't the target of the campaign. But obviously, you know, they are being targeted. Um, you know, wolf uh, numbers are being reduced pretty substantially across the province. Um, so it's hard to believe that, you know, they're, they're not being targets of it when they're explicitly uh, targeting wolves as part of their caribou recovery program. Right. So this has been going on since, what, 2015 now we've had this program? Yeah, exactly. Every winter this is carried out in B.C. since 2015. And the B.C. government just renewed the wolf call for another five years this year. So it's going to be, uh, you know, at least until 2027. Right. And do we know how many wolves have been killed during that time? Um, so it's over 1,700 since uh, 2015. Last winter, they killed uh, around 280 wolves. Uh, it's at a cost, just last winter alone, was $1.75 million to taxpayers. Um, so it's a, you know, quite a significant cost and, a lot, you know, thousands of wolves being killed uh, since the start of the program. So in your opinion then, in, in the group, in the opinion of fur bearers, what, is there a better way to do this? So the, the better way is not to have the wolf call at all. We're calling on the province to end the wolf call. Uh, what's really 
driving caribou population declines are human. It's industrial activity in, in caribou habitat, oil and gas development, it's resource extraction, it's logging. Um, so unless these root causes aren't addressed, you know, the, the caribou don't have a, st- uh, have a chance. So even if they kill wolves every year, the caribou numbers will still decline. So we're calling on the province to end the wolf call and get to the heart of the matter, and it's, it's industrial development and caribou habitat. So do we know if the caribou population has increased during that time? Um, it varies across the province, um, but, uh, the, you know, the latest stats uh, were published by the government last year, and the majority of herds show that the, the numbers are actually decreasing. And, you know, research has shown that um, numbers will continue to gre- de- decrease unless there are concerted efforts to address industrial development in, in these habitats. Do other areas have a wolf call program like we do? Yeah, so next door, Alberta does as well. Um, and so there, there are, is some overlap between some of the caribou herds across the border. Um, but their, their uh, program has been going on for several years as well. Right. So this is something that they do next door as well. Does this show any sign of slowing down here in BC? Any chance of getting meetings on this? Uh, we, we hope so. Uh, we don't see a chance of slowing down. So the, the government did a public engagement uh, last year. So they welcomed the public's uh, comments on the extension of the wolf call. You know, the majority of respondents in their own engagement uh, said they were opposed to predator reduction. Uh, but despite this, the government went ahead and renewed the call for another five years. So we're really disappointed that, you know, ultimately the government didn't listen to the citizens of BC uh, on this program. Aaron, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thanks so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, more family doctors may soon be available in this province to help you hopefully find that family doctor that you have been waiting for. The announcement coming from Premier David Eby yesterday saying that they are expanding a program to help internationally educated doctors practice right here in the province. Let's find out more about this now. Joining us is Dr. Remnick Dosange, President of the Doctors of BC. Dr. Dosange, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. How is this going to change things, do you think? I think that now we have recognized how many problems we have within our healthcare system. And I know that both patients and doctors need all the help they can get. So again, this is one step and a component of a much larger action plan to address the challenges with both family doctor shortages and a lack of patient access. Is this an action plan that Doctors of BC has worked on with the government? Yes, we've been working closely with the government and our partners, and it's something that Doctors of BC has been long advocated for. Okay, so how is this going to work then? How many more doctors will this bring into the system? Well, the expansion of the PRA, the Practice Readiness Assessment Program, which the minister and the premier spoke of yesterday, is the expansion from tripling the number of seats that are allowed to participate in this program. So that will definitely increase the numbers of international medical graduates that are allowed to come back. And the other talk about the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC opening up the licensure spots for U.S. graduates that can come in from a range of pediatrics, internal medicine, emergency medicine, and family medicine to apply as soon as January 1st, as you all heard yesterday. 
Okay, so does this mean that somebody who is trained overseas went to a medical school in another country, how soon would they be able to come here and practice? Well, I'm wondering if all the time, but from hearing the remarks yesterday and more details of what's to come with discussions from the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC, it looks like they're going to open up on January 1st. And if physicians are interested, they're to contact Health Match BC. So, and we understand from the practice readiness assessment program that it is a few months before they can actually practice, but this will help us substantially in the next one to two years. So these are people who also might be from here, isn't that right, Dr. Dosanjh? Like they might have gone to medical school overseas um, and they've just been waiting for a chance to come back. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Okay, so you, do you think this will make a difference then for people being able to find a family doctor? I absolutely do think this is going to make a difference because, again, we are opening the door to physicians that have been dreaming about coming home, and some of them are from here. They've just had training in different jurisdictions, and now with alongside the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC and our ministry partners, we're making this gateway and this access easier because we recognize the needs of our patients and of our family doctors on the ground who are in urgent and dire need of help. Now, I know this focus is really about family doctors here, but what about doctors in other fields as well? What about specialists? You know, we hear a lot about surgeons and and shortages at the hospital level too. What about that area? Right. So it would be interesting to see what kind of doors this move does open. And from hearing yesterday from the U.S. graduates that they're going to open it to pediatrics, internal medicine, and emergency medicine. That should also help contribute to what we're seeing right now in our healthcare crisis. And my hope is that all of this will definitely influence what our specialist colleagues are facing, the increasing wait times and the difficulty to access for patients. Okay, so these sound like there's more announcements still coming here, Dr. Dosanjh. Well, I'm not sure about what is coming in the future, but what I can understand is that these important moves, including the announcement of the payment model for family doctors, these have been substantive changes that our healthcare system is in need of, especially for transformation and to be able to provide the level of care that our patients need. Is there one area, though, that you hope, okay, we still have to make some progress on this? Like, is there an area that you still haven't quite gotten there yet? I think we recognize knowing that there's 1 million patients without family doctor, and we know that that didn't happen overnight. It's going to take time, but I do believe that everyone deserves a family doctor, and I believe that the investments in community care will definitely help our acute care settings. And we know that we've got increased wait times in the emergency departments and the increase in wait time for surgical wait lists. We know that this healthcare system is going to need even more work and, but it's a collaborative effort, and that's what I love seeing right now is that we're working together to acknowledge that we are in a diff- difficult spot, but that we're working together and really doing it for patients. Do you think that more medical students are choosing to go into you know, general practice? I think since the announcement, I've heard really exciting news from a lot of our residents that are right now in the training programs, and they've given it, it's given them hope because they feel that they're going to be recognized for the work that they've trained to do and the acknowledgement of being able to provide the level of care as well as mentorship and teaching within their practices moving forward. And what are you hearing from other provinces too? Because I know BC is kind of a bit of an outlier in making some of these changes. 
I've definitely heard positive feedback, actually. I've, I've spoken on the radio nationally, Ontario, Alberta, where they think that we're trying to attract and re- recruit more physicians from other provinces as well. That being said, I think these changes are necessary in order to serve the needs of our patients. And that is why we do what we do, is that we are in the best interest of our patients and our citizens of this province definitely are in need of a better healthcare system. I guess one of the other questions I would still have too, though, is uh, what about more actual placements in schools? One of the, you know, we've talked about having another medical school here in BC for a long time. Where are those pieces? Well, those pieces, again, the minister has commented in recent months about the SFU medical school and the hopes of opening more seats to attract more medical students and allow that. That, th- that will take time. We know that over time, but the initial investment in those strategies is also important because we recognize that it can take a decade or more in order to recruit the amount of people that we need. But the fundamental change has been this new payment model because now we have an ability to retain our family doctors that have been here and have been doing the hard work and connecting with their patients in relationship-based care. And we've acknowledged that their work is really important. And so this has been a radical movement and almost revolutionary in the sense that we have an ability to decrease the number of physicians that leave and the amount of patients that don't have a family doctor. Dr. Dosanj, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what we see happening in China over the last few days. It's not a place that we often hear associated with widespread protests, but that is what seems to be happening right now. A wave of rare protests breaking out across the country in a show of dissent, unhappiness uh, with their COVID-19 restrictions, their zero COVID policies, and actually expressions of dissent against leader Xi Jinping. So what is going on? We thought, let's put this into some perspective. Joining us now is Jeremy Brown, Associate Professor of History, uh, who specializes in social history of modern China at Simon Fraser University. Jeremy, thank you so much for being here. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. You must be watching this unfolding with such interest. Like, when was the last time we saw something like this in China? Well, it's been a long time. I mean, there are protests every day in China, 20, 30, um, that don't get coverage because they're localized. But in terms of the eyes of the world on China, um, watching hundreds, thousands at this point, not, not more than that, um, you would look at 1989 inside China when the Tiananmen Square protests happens, or, or you would look at Hong Kong in, in 2019 um, with another example of that. But right now you've got, um, yeah, widespread is the white, right word to use what we're seeing. It's protests in more than 20 cities and provinces, maybe even more than that. Um, but the scale is not yet huge, I would say. It's just that we're, we're seeing it amplified on social media quite a bit, and that's why it's, it's looking so prominent now. Yeah, okay. So what is it that is significant about these protests from your perspective? Well, I would say it's a chance for people to connect to each other with the shared experience of living through lockdown and COVID controls uh, over the course of more than two years now. Um, so people are connecting across provincial lines. Um, the the spark was in Xinjiang, in Urumqi, there was a fire four days ago in which 10 people were killed, and the fire trucks couldn't get close to the building because there were cars blocking the way. Apparently those cars' batteries were dead because the people had been not able to use them. They were locked inside for months. Um, so, so social media followers in China 
connected that to COVID zero policies. Ten people died because these policies just didn't make sense, and people are tired of them. Um, and so they're saying we're all we're all from Xinjiang. We're all from Urumqi. We want to stand in solidarity with the people who died. Uh, so that was the spark this time, uh, and and it's it's notable that that people are, are getting out in the streets. Um, but it's still early. It's still early days, and, and we don't know how it's going to develop. Yeah, that's a good point. Is this, at this point, a, a challenge? Is it seen as a direct challenge to Xi Jinping? Uh, in some ways, it is. I think a lot of the discontent came after October when Xi Jinping was, um, you know, selected again, chosen again for a, for a third term, which basically means he can be the leader for life, is, is what he set him up to be. And I think a lot of people in China were hoping that there would be more easing of the lockdown policies of the constant testing uh, of the restrictions. And there was a bit of easing, but not enough because the local authorities have a playbook that they go to when there are lots of infections and they keep going back to it. So, I, I mean, ironically, the easing that did happen in terms of um, not locking people up and putting them in quarantine centers for um, having been in a store where somebody who tested positive walked through the week before, that has eased up a bit. But because of the easing, people actually have more freedom to go outside and protest right now. So it's a combination of it didn't ease up enough, and the little bit of easing means that people are going outside um, more than they, they were before October. Yeah, what, is, what surprises you about these protests? Um, I would say that um, so far uh, we see women in the lead more than we did in previous protests in 1989, at least from the, from the media, the images and the videos that I'm seeing. So that's that's different. Um, we see uh, a lot of blank papers being shown. I don't know if... Yeah, I've seen that. What does that the, mean? The blank paper means uh, I'm not allowed to say anything because of the censorship regime, so I'm going to let this blank paper stand in for what I really want to say. And everybody knows what I really want to say, which is um, maybe what the man in Beijing who put up a banner on in October said, that we don't want PCR tests anymore. Um, we don't want lockdowns anymore. We don't want this great leader anymore. We want to have elections. We don't want to be slaves anymore. Um, we want to be citizens. And so he said that uh, in October, and now these people have these blank page papers, or, or they have a piece of paper that says, that actually they write on the paper, you know, every, you know what I want to say. Everybody knows what I want to say. Or I have no words. Um, so there's this sort of cat and mouse game, this creative um, evasion of censorship that is still getting people, um, you know, arrested or Push, pushed aside for standing outside and protesting because the police know what the people want to say too. Right. So that's what I'm wondering then. So are, has there been any shape of a crackdown yet? Like how tolerant or not tolerant has the government and law enforcement been? Uh, it's mixed. I mean, it, I think what we're going to see is local governments in cities throughout China are being taxed, ta- are going to have to figure out how to handle the protests on their own. And some will let them disperse because that's probably the smartest thing for the police to do, is just let people run out of their energy and, and go home. And some will crack down, and then that will lead to protests against the crackdown. That's, we saw, that's what we saw in 1989, that a lot of the protests after the initial, um, the initial spark in April of 1989 were actually about the state characterization of the protest and about the police violence against the protesters. We saw that in Hong Kong in 2019 as well. So we're going to probably see that now. If the police are violent, the protests will be against the official handling of the protest, and that will probably get more people on board. Is that what you think then? So is it just a matter of waiting right now to see, is this going to kind of peter out, or will it grow? Well, it's a, it's, it's, you have to 
think that the Chinese leadership is in a difficult situation here because if they let up more and open up more, then they'll be seen as having given concessions to the protesters, and Xi Jinping doesn't like to um, compromise. He doesn't like to give concessions. Um, and if they open up more, there will be more people getting sick, and there will be more people who are unvaccinated who are potentially getting, getting very sick. So that's the, that's the calculus that they're making, and it's, it's not an easy one. But I think, I think actually the World Cup is such a key precipitator of people being willing to say we've had enough of these lockdowns because soccer is incredibly popular, popular in China. Everybody has been watching, and what do they see? They see 40,000 fans cheering without masks on, and it seems to be going totally fine. So why, why can't we go to soccer games? Why do we have to wear masks everywhere? Why, are, why is our society not opened up? And I, and I think that in combination with the fire last week and with the, the party congress in October is what's um, telling people, you know, it's, it's, maybe it's time to step out and say something. That is so interesting then, Jeremy. I didn't even think about that. So normally they would never see anything that would show them something different, would they? Because everything is so tightly controlled. Well, there's a lot of opportunities to see things if you want to go out and, and look. But if you, if you just want to sit down and see a soccer game, that's such a widespread shared experience for, for millions, hundreds of millions of people in China who, who love soccer. Um, I, I think that that shared experience raised some eyebrows and said, well, why, why are we doing things so differently? But at the same time, there's still, you know, the amount of people who are out on the streets protesting now is smaller than the amount of people who are actually happy with zero COVID in China or some version of it. There's still a lot of people who say um, they're scared of the virus. Uh, they're scared of getting sick. They're scared of long COVID and they want to trust the government. So there's still a huge number of people who, who are supportive of the government and who are supportive of the policy. They're willing to, to keep it going. Um, because of fear of sickness or fear of repression, both of those things. So we'll have to see if there gets to be a tipping point where more people will want to get out on the street or, or support the protesters in some way. Right, the next couple of days will be so interesting. Jeremy, thank you for that this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.